Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It is time for the podcast. Podcast that makes economics a bit more comprehensible and a little bit more relevant for all of our lives. And apparently so. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Allegedly. And John, I'm going to today discuss lessons from Lebanon. Lessons from a poor country that went from reasonable prosperity to abject poverty in probably nine or ten months. And it's a phenomenally interesting lesson. The reason it's crucial is that the IMF believe and maintain that at least one in five of the world's population are at risk of what happened in Lebanon. At least another one-fifth of the world's population are at risk of food shortages. And my sense is that it's much higher than this, that the global economy is at a fragile point. And it's a bizarre thing where where the poor part of the world can't get their hands on enough dollars or euros. Yes. And the rich part of the world are swimming in them. We we touched on this on Tuesday, but you're scaring the living daylights out of me. (laughs) With that kind of talk. Well, it's, it's, it's fighting talk, John. It's fighting talk. But no, I mean, it's just, you know, when you go, when you visit countries and you think there's always a weakness for saying uh, that are, that's only here because they're mm. ethnically divided and they're in the wrong neighborhood and they have Syria beside them and Israel below them and, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. Hezbollah running the shop. But that sort of exclusivity, you know, that it can't happen to us. Yeah. Don't, don't The global economy doesn't work like that because things are so integrated and there's so much... So explain to me then, how did this happen? Okay. Like, And like, how does the whole thing fit together in the world right. in order for... Th- that's the end result for the likes of Lebanon and Sri Lanka and... Well, uh, and possibly India and possibly largest parts of Africa, definitely large parts of Latin America. Yeah. There's two things as I remember many years ago, seeing what it's like to experience a run on the currency from the inside. 
And that happened here in 1992 when the Irish punt collapsed or fell dramatically against European countries. And I remember seeing... This when Bertie was... Was when Bertie said... Finance. When Bertie said to us after the event, if I had went in quicker, it would have went in earlier. (laughs) What? Isn't that the most extraordinary thing? What did he say? This is a great thing. So 1992. So I'm like... I'm the... You're a It's actually, it's early 1993. It's about January 1993. And eventually Ireland had to devalue the currency after having tried to fight this non-devaluation thing, which I'll tell you how, yeah. how it happened. And I was, of course, at the central bank, but the central bank was coordinating the whole thing. Yeah. And Bertie was the finance minister, <laughs> where he accused Germany and France of having a sweetheart deal, right, <laughs> behind the things. But anyway, after the currency was devalued, right, and after we'd spent loads and loads of, I mean, huge amounts of the reserves trying to prop it up. Yeah. I'll explain yeah. all that. And interest rates went really, really high. Bertie came in. And I was at the back and it was, like, it, was, it was the team that was involved in this. And I was just bag carrying it. Yeah. But he said the most amazing thing, right? He said, if I had a went in earlier, it would have went in quicker. <laughs> I don't know what that means. And what it actually meant was, <laughs> had we devalued the currency earlier, the fall, the subsequent fall in the currency would have been more precipitous, right? Right. <laughs> the, so basically, had we, had we decided not to fight the financial markets, this yeah. is the idea, by basically saying, we have more money than you and we will prop up this currency. Had we not done this after two or three months of trying to defend the exchange rate, what Bertie was maintaining is that the currency would have fallen even more. Right. Was but, he right? Or but was what he... he actually said was, if I had it went earlier, it would have went in quicker. <laughs> just... <laughs> he, he was a man with an eloquent, no, articulate man. I was just, man. Was just man. I just remember He's sitting great, there. Though. That's great. I just remember sitting there and said, did he just say that? <laughs> he did. Anyway, but what happens in the currency, right? So, but when I'm traveling around, I always think like, these things can happen. So basically what happens is, if people think that your currency peg, that you, the central bank, mm. decide, is not credible, what happens is people will start selling your currency and buying dollars, right? Yeah. And then in order to keep your currency up, you have to buy your own currency and sell dollars, right? right? And how you buy your own currency is you reduce and you use your foreign reserves. Yeah. That's why you have foreign reserves because they're basically a reserve to have in a crisis, yeah. right? And eventually what happens is either you have enough reserves you squeeze the speculators out of the system, you increase interest rates, and people say, okay, those guys are in control, or you end up wasting money, wasting money, throwing good money after bad, and your currency devalues because the pressure you're under is far too great. And I remember experiencing that from within a central bank, and knowing what it's, it was really weird. You could see the reserves are kind of like, the gold of the country, yeah. in, in a way. Are they tucked away in a little room somewhere? So, yeah, the little bar. It's uh, room 4021 <laughs> on the third floor. Right. Yeah. Have you got the combo for it? Exactly, exactly. All <laughs> the reserves, right? And uh, so so what happens in small central banks is that you should never get into that position. Yeah. That you're yeah. trying to defend your currency against a speculative attack. And the speculative attack can come from either inside or outside. And what happened somewhere like Lebanon is the following. Like, I mean, it was interesting. So last week I was up on Mount Lebanon, right? Which right. is this extraordinary mountain, you know, huge, yeah. huge, huge mountain. And I was in a foreign exchange little bureau, right? But what's fascinating in Lebanon is you have 
21 different sects of Christianity alone. Right. right 21, okay. right? You've got Armenian Orthodox, Armenian Catholic, Maronite Catholic, Greek Orthodox, other Orthodox, Copts, everything, right? You have Assyrians, you have Alawites, you have, of course, Palestinians. I mean, yeah. the whole world is there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you've got all these... It's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, actually. and so fascinating. So yeah. you've got all these different cultures and tribes, and of course you've got Sunni and Shia and all this, yeah. and the biggest part are Sunni and Shia. And you've got all these people, different cultures, different religions, different morals, different headdress, they dress differently, different languages, yeah. right? Because the, the Maronites speak a kind of half French, half Arabic language. Right. All sorts of stuff, right? But they have one universal language that ties them all together, which is money, the currency. Right. Yeah. So no yeah. matter if you are an Alawite or an Assyrian or a Maronite, right, what actually binds you together with Sunni and Shia and Palestinian is you're actually dealing with the same currency. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they all experience this, irrespective of, of, what, of what church they go to or what their values right. tend yeah. to be. Yeah. And what happened in Lebanon has been happening all over the world. So when you have a period of really low interest rates, interest rates do two things for central banks, right? One is central bankers look at interest rates as a way of bearing down on or inflating the economy. So bearing down on inflation or inflating the economy. Yeah. That's the price. But the other thing that very low interest rates do is they lead to what economists call the misallocation of capital, right? Because when interest rates are very, very low, the cost of capital is low. So therefore, the cost of failure is low as yes. well. Yeah, so you yeah. tend to take much higher risks when interest rates are very low, Yeah. right? Because basically, what the, if you think about the rate of interest, the rate of interest is the price of time, which is a weird thing to think about. Okay. Yeah. So for example, when you're taking out a mortgage, right? 30-year mortgage, yeah, and the rate of interest is 5%, okay? What that's basically saying is that the price that money puts on time is 5%, yeah. right? So basically, if you, if you imagine what borrowing is, in a way, borrowing allows you to travel in time. So you're borrowing from your imagined richer self, yeah, yeah, and you're giving it to your present poorer self. So you're actually making calculations about something that's phenomenal as yeah. time, right? Which is why, for example, in the old days, Thomas Aquinas and all those geezers, the Catholic Church, the Christian Church was against usury, charging interest on money. Okay. Because they thought that only God could put a price on time, right? <sighs> right, okay. But the, the really dirty secret was they were involved in the banking business themselves. Right. What did Manny say about that? But Manny, <laughs> Manny was having... I'm not too sure. I suspect Manny was very much in the anti-usury. Well, if you hear all about Islamic finance, you know, the, yes, yeah, yeah, Muslims aren't allowed to charge interest, yeah, because it's putting the price on time. So it's a very, very old. So Manny, I suspect, yes, was definitely in the. This no is the book that that Mac has discovered. He's he, a new prophet for Mac. This is yeah. It's by it's by a Lebanese writer called Amin Malouf. It's called The Gardens of Light, and I am now obsessed. Yeah. With Mesopotamia in the third century. That's where I am. Yeah. I'm walking, okay? <laughs> I am walking in, back in time. white flowing garments and I'm walking to India <laughs> and I'm, I'm depending on the kindness holding of strangers. Holding a big staff in your hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I've just broken free from a sect of gentlemen called the white garment sect, actually. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I am now, I am now cultivating my own religion. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to be a member uh, yeah. This is Jerry Faldwell, 1 800 72. <laughs> yeah. he, wears, he wears socks and sandals. Socks go, and sandals. Go on, exactly. Yeah. Like a geography teacher. So, <laughs> but we go back. So, what happened in Lebanon 
is the Lebanese needed to rebuild their country after the civil war. Yeah. What they did was the Lebanese central bank says, we will undertake to maintain the Lebanese lira or pound, depending on where you are. Let's call it lira because mm. they, they interchange at 1,500 lira to the dollar, right? Wow, yeah. And that was fine for a while. So lots and lots of people, investors, deposited money, not, not say investors, deposited money in the banks of Lebanon. Yeah. They were offering a higher rate of interest than anywhere else. And that's for a while, and this is, this is what the Turks are doing, the Lebanese are doing, the Brazilians are doing, they're all doing this, the Mexicans are doing, they're all doing this game, right? Yeah. They're basically attracting in capital. And what happens in that case is that for, for a while, the capital comes in, it comes into the central bank. Because it's in dollars and you can't use dollars, they have to convert that into lira to yeah. make that available to local investors and business people and property tycoons and all this. Mm -hmm. So they recycled all those dollars into lira. They lent those lira out. Those liras then went into construction and all sorts of good stuff in Lebanon. Also, the government decided to get in on the act and the government borrowed from the central bank as well, which is a big no-no. Okay. Okay. In, right? Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. basically when you have all these various sects, you kind of have to keep everyone on side, right? Yeah. And how you do this, you don't let the smarties to everyone. It's yeah. a bit like Northern Ireland. Yes, yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you, yeah. my bonfire is bigger than your bonfire? You know? So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you've got to dole out the sweeties to keep everyone happy. It's, it's yeah. like, you remember the, 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 the Gladstone had this idea of killing home rule with kindness, that they would actually spend money in Ireland, the Brits. Right, yeah, And they'd yeah. actually emasculate home rule with kindness, with spending money. So yeah. this is what they were doing. But again, everything's going fine for a while. The living standards are rising. The problem, though, is that if you have an overvalued exchange rate, and it's very, very clear that the Lebanese had an overvalued exchange rate. It means that the productive capacity of the country collapses. So you basically don't make anything because it's right. too expensive, right? Quick, quick question. How did it become overvalued? Well, because the Lebanese picked a number, right? Right. And then what was happening is the Lebanese real wages rose, right? Very, very rapidly. Yeah. Up to a dollar figure of real wages. Okay. But their productivity wasn't increasing. Why? Because okay. the investments gotcha. Gotcha. that were being made in productive capacity, a country like Lebanon, like Ireland, imagine what Ireland did. Ireland got rich by making capital cheap here. Yeah. By not taxing it, right? The Lebanese tried to remain rich, but they didn't deploy the same capital taxation. So they didn't get any capital or any investment in real stuff. So it meant that they were always running... A trade deficit. They didn't make yeah. enough stuff. But, but why did they do that? I mean, was that just a miscalculation or, or what? Uh, look, the charitable explanation is a miscalculation. Right. The uncharitable explanation, it was free money for the boys. It was corruption. Okay. And what you see in many, many countries is this weird combination where if your currency is overvalued, it means that your population have a higher standard of living than they otherwise would have. Yeah. And that's very, very good to be voted in. Yeah, sure. But in the long term, if your currency is overvalued, it means that your productive side of the economy will always be underinvested in because your wages are too high relative to the rest of the world. And eventually you will run a large trade deficit. And when you have a large trade deficit, you have to finance it. Yeah. And how you finance it is you have to run a current account surplus. 
And how you do that is you raise your interest rates to attract in money. So basically what you're doing, you're living off borrowed money yes. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's happening all over the world at the moment. That's the thing. That's why Lebanon's interesting. Right. So this is when the IMF says, you know, more than a billion people are living. I think it's much, much higher than that, actually. In these sort of countries where the lifestyle is rented, not earned, where the ability to pay back their debts is a function of global interest rates, which are rising, and their exchange rates, because many, many poor countries have to borrow in dollars because the financial markets don't trust their own currency. So they're exposed on the exchange rate side, they're exposed on the interest rate side, they have trade deficits. So they're kind of running to stand still all the time. So, Mac, you were talking about Lebanon and uh, currency crisis and stuff, but same kind of thing is happening in Sri Lanka. What's your take it's, on it's, that? It's exactly the same thing. It's, 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 what happens is you have a currency regime, which is, you take a country like Sri Lanka, big, big country in terms of population. Mm, yeah. They will tend to be running trade deficits, right? So their exports, what's called their terms of trade, right, are usually at a disadvantage, which means that the dollar price of what they're exporting is less valuable than the dollar price of what they're importing. Yeah. So let's say they're importing high tech and exporting low tech. Just for an example. Yeah. This is what t- tends to happen in poor countries. They export agricultural products, tertiary products, yeah. but they import what's called primary products. So they're let's say they're exporting live cattle and they're importing cars. Okay. Okay. Just imagine that, right? Yep. yep. So all the time is unless the price of live cattle is going up relative to the price of cars they will run a deficit because they're not exporting high-tech goods. I'm using cars as reasonably high-tech, okay? And over time, initially that's fine, but over time what needs to happen is your currency needs to devalue commensurate with how your trade deficit is progressing. Explain that. So basically, if your trade deficit is rising, the only way in which you're going to be able to be competitive is if your currency falls against the dollar, yeah. right? Because that would mean your wages are lower relative to dollar but, wages. But it would do naturally and under those circumstances. It should, but most central banks don't want to do that. And the reason they don't want to do oh. that is because if you're in a country that's small and importing lots of stuff and your currency is falling, it means what's called your imported inflation is rising. So everything you're importing is actually going up in price relative to your right. own currency. Yeah. So central banks tend to try and achieve the unachievable, ironically, right? Yeah. Which is, one, they try and keep the exchange rate strong to bear down on inflation. Two, they try and increase interest rates over and above dollar rates to attract in capital. Yeah. And three, they try to play a game of chicken with financial markets, trying to pretend that everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. Now, when there is loads and loads of money in the world, when interest rates are low... Everyone gets away with it because nobody cares. It's what yes. it's what Warren Buffett said is, you know, you only get to see who's swimming in the nude when the tide goes out. Yeah. So imagine that idea. So right now, so for the, for five or six years, this was fine. Nobody really cared. And yeah, there were some dilemmas, but there was always money to borrow, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Right now, as interest rates are rising, there's a shortage of dollars in countries that can't print dollars. So which is loads of people in the nude then. John, there are langers all over the shop, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Right? Okay. No, I'm um, all up for skinny tipping. It's great. It is actually. It is. <laughs> but I think what 
has happened now is there's a shortage of dollars in countries that really need dollars. Yeah. And there's an abundance of dollars in countries that don't need them. So I'll, I'll explain that to you, right? Imagine there's inflation in the United States, right? Yeah. And there are currency crises in poorer countries. So the reason there's inflation in the United States is a variety of reasons, but one of them is there's just too many dollars knocking around. So there's right. too many dollars chasing too few goods, so the price of goods goes up and yeah. the price of dollars falls. The polar opposite of that is happening in Sri Lanka, where there are no dollars, right? Yeah. Simply because nobody will lend to them. So they've run out of dollars. So what's, what tends to happen is a country like Sri Lanka will print currency in order to pay its cops and its teachers and its yeah, nurses, yeah, yeah. right? But it's, the but more, it's worthless. The, the more they print, the more worthless it becomes. Yeah. And it's only worthless if you're running a trade deficit. This is the key, right? So you can print money as long as the economy has got the capacity to generate goods to absorb that money. Right. But what happens in those small countries, and in much bigger countries as well, is if you keep printing the currency, and if you have nothing to produce, the currency just becomes completely worthless. And then eventually, they ran out of dollars so much in Sri Lanka that they had a choice between paying government debt or paying for petrol, or paying for food. Yes. Paying for wheat. And if you think, okay, that's Sri Lanka. Think about what's happening in Egypt, right? The Egyptians have just, they're the biggest importers of wheat in the world. Right. They have just secured a $500 million loan from the IMF to buy bread. Wow. And that's Egypt which is a crucial player in the Middle East. It's a crucial player in Africa. But this is a direct result of Ukraine. It's, it's Ukraine and the fact that they don't have their own dollars yeah. to buy the wheat. So they're actually now borrowing money yeah. from the IMF. Now, Egypt may well be slightly better served because the Gulf states, Saudi and the yeah. UAE, could bail them out. Right. But what we're in is a sort of a Ponzi situation where everyone's bailing out everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at some stage, that you know, the well, it's not there's always a day of reckoning, but there is a moment where the music stops yeah. and people have to say, okay, where are we? Like, so, like for example, there is a link. You you mentioned Elon Musk in the last uh, discussion we had, right? Yeah, I did. There is a link between Elon Musk trying to back out, wriggle his way out of Twitter. Yeah, what an and, idiot! And Egyptian anyway. wheat. Right? Go on, okay. And this the following is, this, is that basically Elon Musk has run out of money. Right. Okay? okay, and he's now trying to say, because the price of Twitter that he was going to buy it at, I, I can't 44 remember. billion. And, and no, but the share price of Twitter at the time was, let's say, let's say it was 100. Right, right. And now right. it's down at 70, so he's already at a huge loss. Yeah. And he's run out of money. That's why he's trying to wrangle right, right okay. out of it, because he's run out of because he's had to borrow 44 billion. That's a lot yeah. of bread. I thought he okay. had that in his In his arse pocket. Yeah. Not at all, not at all. And... It's exactly the same thing. It's basically that the the best way to look at credit, you, you love your nature, right? I do, I do. If you imagine the Serengeti, yeah. right? If you imagine the Serengeti in the rainy season, yeah, and the rains come in and the rivers swell and the whole place is verdant and full of life and you yeah. can smell life and you can see the whole thing and you have the hippos you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. around, right? It's, it's good times all These around. good times. So that's yeah. what happens when interest rates are low. Yeah. There's good times everywhere. There's water everywhere. Imagine interest rates are like the water of life of economics. Yeah. And there's water everywhere. And then gradually, the rainy season subsides yeah. and the earth becomes parched and cracked. And suddenly all those animals 
that were so well served water and they were having a laugh yeah. are now on the verge of drought yeah. and dying. It's exactly the same thing. So water gushes into the system when interest rates are low and everyone does well. And even parts of the savannah that are normally parched get a few days of water and a few yeah. days of of moisture, right? This is David Michael Attenborough. This is David Michael Williams Attenborough. <laughs> this is my new thing. And so imagine that those parts of Savannah that are usually parched are those third world countries. Yes. So for, for a little while, everything's fine. Yeah. And everything yeah. works and their standard of living rises. But then as night follows day, because the credit cycle is a repetitive yeah. beast of burden almost, right? And it happens all the time, repeats itself all the time. What you have is that interest rates start to rise. And all those verdant areas that were full of life become parched. And that's exactly what's happening now. And it's happening all over the world. So what happens now then? If it is a repetitive cycle, how do we kickstart again? How do we flood that Serengeti? To flood the Serengeti, but I think you, you, you were, we're just going to have a lot of defaults in the next two years. I think okay. a lot of debt, debt that cannot, And then what will that do? Debt that cannot be paid won't be paid. Yeah. That's one of the you know that's one of the great uh, truisms of economics, and we had a situation in the 1980s where Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil all defaulted very very quick, one after another, mm. and they were locked out of financial markets for a whole decade until the Americans invented a thing called Brady bonds, which was a sort of a, a swap. They would say, "We'll take your old shitty bonds and we'll give you new bonds," and yeah, but there was a huge amount of debt forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, and I think now. Given that we mentioned Mani, yes, I think we should go back to the Bible, and we should quote. Le- Let's hold hands, David. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let's hold hands, right? <laughs> Debt forgiveness is one of the oldest financial tools in the world, right? And in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, yeah, they speak about the jubilee year, and that was one year, I think, in every twenty, right, right? where. Debtors had their debts forgiven and there was a blank slate and you started again. So if you go back, you know, we started with our friend Manny and the Zoastrians. Yes. If you go back, well back to Sumerians, right? Yeah. Debt forgiveness was a tactic used by kings to undermine the merchant class and make the kings very popular with the working class, right? Right. Because the merchants tended to be the moneylenders. Yeah. And those merchants tended to constantly have the working man, the peasants. See, the reason that farmers always get into debt is that farmers have this bizarre cash flow problem. Well, of course, which, yeah. Which is yeah. That when, they, when they sow their stuff, they've no money. Yeah. And they only get money when they sell their stuff. Yeah. So they're always in a debt cycle. Yeah. So if you go right back to the original agricultural societies, right? The merchant class, the lenders, the money lenders, yeah. the fellows that Jesus thrown out of the, uh, the temple. Yes. yeah, yeah. Who were actually, I'll give you, those people, those money lenders that Jesus threw out of the temple were actually money changers. And they were doing what the Lebanese guys were doing. They all wanted to get the Tyrolean drachma. Right. Right, from Tyre, the city of Tyre. Yeah. Incredibly wealthy place, made very rich by a variety of industries, one of which was the color purple they produced, right? Right. And they refused to debase their silver drachma, right? So everybody came to Jerusalem to trade, but 
they only traded with this one currency. So they wouldn't take the Mickey Mouse currencies of Persia and the Mickey Mouse currencies right, of... Right, right, right. So in the temple was actually a Bureau de Change. That's what Jesus got pissed off about. Yeah. And they were all changing their money into what is in effect the dollar of the day, the Tyrolean drachma, yeah. right? And that's what Jesus went mad about. Yeah. But imagine that was happening all the time, all over the place. And in the biblical times, they realized that if you keep your neighbors in debt, they'll end up getting really, really angry with you. Well, absolutely. And having revolutions. Yeah, yeah. So the well, kings used to have these jubilee years to basically curry favor with the population. Yeah. Because who doesn't like a fellow says you don't have to pay that back? But if you knew that there was a jubilee year coming up, you'd be going, I'm going to borrow up to me oxters oh, yeah, and stuff. Exactly, and I yeah. bet you people did. I <laughs> yeah. bet you people did. And then you'd, then you'd, then you'd lobby your man, the king, saying, yeah, yeah. jubilee here, jubilee here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was his way of also, because imagine all the kings were always worried about, like very few Roman empires ever died in their bed. Mm. They were always murdered, right? Yes, yeah, So yeah, very, yeah. very few kings ever met with a nice death. So they were always worried about being outfoxed and outmaneuvered in the in in the court, right? Mm. And usually, like now with our friends in the Brits, right? It's usually a donor is behind the politician, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And those donors were always moneylenders and merchants. So in a way, the they kings, still are. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the kings tried to keep the moneylenders, the merchants, the potential donors of potential adversaries in their place by injecting jubilee years, actually taking the their cash off them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you ask me what's going to happen. I always think, and it's not because I'm reading Manny and I've decided to become a shaman, right? I think if we go back to history, John, we need a jubilee year. We need debt forgiveness for poor countries. And that's the way forward. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, one of the most benighted tribes of our followers and listeners on the podcast are our Patreons, people who pay us to get out of the scratcher and actually do this for you. <laughs> yeah. 
And patrons are always coming out with questions and ideas. So from this week, we're going to look at the questions that you Patreons have submitted in, and we're going to answer those questions. And we're going to keep it going every week. So we have a community of questions and answers and ideas. And the amazing thing is, you know it when you really do something like this, is we, I learn as much from your questions as hopefully you will learn from my answers. So, John, what are the first Patreon questions Yes, indeed. Well, we've had a whole bunch in. So I'm going to start with one from Martin Walsh. And Martin asks, is the staff shortage got to do with people living longer, which leads to more people being employed to cater for their needs? Interesting. It is an interesting question, Martin. How are you doing there? The staff shortage. Yes, I know what you mean. The very, very labor intensive area. And you could well be seeing lots and lots of people in what you would describe as sort of the provision of services to older people, which may well be sucking those people out of different parts of the economy. That could well be the case. My own sense is the staff shortages has got to do with something quite, quite different. And it's the following, is that during the pandemic, lots and lots of people got paid lots and lots of money not to work. And there's a hangover from that, particularly amongst students, for example, that they actually earned and were sitting on five or six grand of PPE money. And that hasn't been actually run down just yet. So in certain sectors, what you're seeing is those people are not coming back to the labor force. Another thing is the importance of inheritance in the economy. So because asset prices have been rising for the last 30 years, a significant minority, I mean, a minority, but a significant minority of people have become very, very wealthy in terms of assets. And many of those people may well now be choosing to completely change their lifestyle and live off their rents and their dividends or their asset values, maybe going to the bank and pledging collateral, which is a higher asset value against cash flow, and actually choosing not to work. Because I think that there's something there with respect to asset values. But I will come back to your idea of demography. I think it's a good one. So thank you very much for the question, Martin. Okay, here's another one from Connor O'Reilly. And he asks, if inflation is skyrocketing, peaking at or just above 10%, and the stock market is going through the floor, what in the name of God (laughs) are we supposed to do with our cash savings? Connor, what in the name of Jesus are we supposed to do with our money? Well, you mean, you put your finger on it. We're in a world now where... Crypto away, Mac? (laughs) We're in a world where real interest rates are negative, meaning the rate of inflation is 10, the rate of interest is 1, it means you're losing 9% by keeping money on deposit every year. Connor, most people would say buy real assets, buy companies that are, even though the stock market may well be falling, it will reach a plateau by companies with very, very strong yields, right? Dividend yields. Have a look at companies that are yielding strong, strong dividends. That's number one. Lots of other people may well say that it's time to buy properties, although they've gone through the roof. But I mean, you are, the question is, what in the name of God are you supposed to do your cash savings? Spend them. <laughs> Go far to your head off, Connor. Yeah. <laughs> So here's another one, Mark, from Jeanette Lennon. And she says, I live in Italy 
And the brief mention of Gramsci, is that how you Gramsci, pronounce? Gramsci, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci. Yes, okay, sorry. <clears throat> the brief mention of Gramsci made me want to learn more. So I went down a rabbit hole of trying to understand cultural hegemony. Many nod, but cannot explain. I think I get it, but would really like your view. Grazie. Grazie, Ginetta. Let's come back to Gramsci, because Gramsci's an interesting thinker. And I will come back to that next week, and I'll have a delve into my Gramsci and see what bits and pieces. I was just mentioning him because of one of, of his great, very quotable sort of thinker. But let me come back to Gramsci, and we'll come back to cultural hegemony, and we'll do all that sort of stuff. Okay. That's fair enough. Stand by, I think, is the... Uh, Stand by, yeah. Last one here for today uh, from Louis Burke. Why do you think are all the union chiefs in the UK seemingly Irish? Like your man Lynch and Ward, blah, blah, blah. I think it's a very good question. I think, Louis, 500,000 Irish people emigrated to England in the 1950s alone. And many, many people will have uncles and great uncles and granddads and all those who went to a variety of places. Now, most of those Irish people left this country with no qualifications, and they ended up working in the factories of the United Kingdom. So the Irish working class in the United Kingdom, the white working class in the United Kingdom, has a very, very significant Irish element to it. And the white working class forms the basis of the trade union movement. So I think there's a direct link between the emigrants of the 1950s and it's their kids are the trade union leaders of now. Mm. And that's where I think Lynch and Ward and all those people are because part of the Irish story in the UK, whether you're Johnny Rotten or whether you're a trade union leader, is that you were part of the working class and the white working class. And that's where they come from. So I think... There is an extra, and again, maybe, maybe there's an anti-establishment thing there going on too. Huge representation of Irish people in the Labour Party, very, very few in the Tories, mm. and part of the Labour Party's alliance is always with the trade union movement. So I think what you're seeing is yes, that the, the left, the Irish in the UK are left wing. There's no doubt. Yeah, and your man Mick Lynch, isn't it? Mick Lynch, yeah. He is. He's some operator. That fella. he is. He is. He's proper. Yeah, he is yeah. proper. Yeah. He's good. He's really good. Yeah, but I mean, the best was Red Robbo, guy called Robertson, who was the leader of the British Leyland trade unions in the 1970s. Yeah, he was also a paddy. There were loads of those paddies. Yes, yeah. And then if you look at Jim Callaghan and all those, like, a lot of the Labour leaders of the the 1970s were were all Irish as well. Jim Callan, was he? Yeah, well, it's in the name. Yeah, I know, I know. And, but and so a lot of those, so it's, it's also like a lot of the footballers in the like 1980s. Yeah. You know, were again, working class Irish families. Kevin Keegan, a great example. All these names, you know, yeah, you yeah. kind of forget that they're all the echo of, of Irish people. From the 50s, yeah. From the 50s, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed this and keep the questions coming on Patreon. And if you're not on Patreon, sign up and be part of the gang. Talk to you next week. On Thursday, we're starting a new little initiative, which is to reward our Patreons for backing us over the last couple of years, for you putting your hand in your pocket and stumping up to keep John and I sane and slightly beyond bankruptcy. What we're doing is every week on our Patreon site, there are dozens of questions come in. We try to answer them, but from now on, we're going to answer them on the podcast. So that is... 
patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Sign up if you're not a member. If you are a member of the gang, by all means, anything that's on your mind, anything that's annoying you, issues you want explained, clarified, just jot them down. And every Thursday, we will answer some of your questions. Thanks so much. Talk to you Thursday. Thursday.